You're listening to a Frequency Podcast Network production in association with City News. I just spent the last two weeks way out in the country on a farm. And from what I heard whenever I checked in while I was gone, the city that I live in and plenty of other cities around the world were pretty hot. Montreal in its first heat wave of the summer season. Toronto activates its heat relief network, opening cooling centers across the city. The UK Met Office issuing its first ever red warning for extreme heat. While Toronto and Europe and other places were burning up, I was about 150 kilometers away from any large city, in the middle of nowhere, basically. And it was hot there, too. It was above 30 degrees Celsius for much of the past week, and it felt more like 35, which, without air conditioning, is uncomfortable. There's a reason I'm telling you this story. Because there's a difference between the heat in Toronto and the heat on a farm. Every night during the heat wave on the farm, usually a little after 11 p.m., when the sun had been down for a couple of hours, the heat just went away. I went to bed after one of the hottest days I've ever had out there, with a fan blowing in my face, with a bottle of cold water next to me, and under the lightest sheet that I could find. And around 2 a.m., in the middle of this heat wave, I woke up freezing, which brings me back to cities like Toronto, where the heat never goes away. Where, in the middle of a real heat wave, like last week, temperatures can feel almost the same at 2 a.m. as they do at 2 p.m. And as more and more cities see record temperatures every single summer, and more and more days above normal, the danger just builds. So we need to take a look at how our cities are put together, at the level of heat they can withstand before both people and infrastructure start collapsing, and how to adapt them to the future that we're already living in. Because while heat waves aren't as gripping as superstorms and forest fires, they're every bit as deadly, especially in the city. I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. This is The Big Story. I swear I wasn't bragging to you about being out on a farm for the past two weeks. I really did. It was really hot. I'm back here today with Inori Roy, who is a Toronto-based journalist, associate editor at The Local, which has combined with The Narwhal to produce a series on climate in Canada's largest city. Hey, Inori. Hi, Jordan. Thanks so much for having me. You are most welcome. Why don't you start by telling us about Lydia Ferreira? Who is she? What does she do? Yeah, so Lydia is one of the volunteers at CREW, which is the uh, Community Resource for Extreme uh, Weather. 
Um, they are a team of volunteers in St. Jamestown who work to uh, check in on vulnerable people during heat waves and other extreme events in Toronto. So the vulnerable people they check in with are usually um, people who are elderly or have chronic illnesses uh, and don't necessarily have networks in their homes uh, or neighborhoods that they can reach out to when they're feeling the health effects of extreme weather. So one of the places that she works is St. Jamestown. Can you just kind of describe, especially for people who may not live in Toronto, describe St. Jamestown in general, but also those apartment buildings uh, when Toronto is in the middle of a heat wave? Yeah, so St. Jamestown is a very uh, densely built neighborhood. It's uh, one of the most dense neighborhoods in, in the entire country. Um, and it's comprised mainly of high-rise buildings that were built in the 1960s. So they don't necessarily have the infrastructure to be able to uh, install a air conditioning uh, in most of the apartments there. And so uh, as a result of being older buildings that don't necessarily have um, new and updated infrastructure, they're also largely populated by low-income and racialized people who've been priced out of other parts of the city. Um, and a lot of those people are also elderly. So those combined factors means that when there's a heat wave, uh, the temperature inside those apartments gets really high. Um, the apartments become really stifling and muggy. Um, and the people who live in those apartments also face the health effects of uh, heat in a more extreme way than uh, sort of younger and healthier uh, Torontonians would. Mm -hmm. And so as a result, they become more susceptible through a lot of different factors. And what do they do? Do they sit in their apartments and sweat? What are their options? Well, the thing is that they could go downstairs to their lobbies, which are often designated as like cooling centers for the building because the city recognizes that there is this problem of lack of access to air conditioning. Uh, but a lot of the people who are worst impacted also don't have the mobility to be able to go downstairs. You know, they uh, are sort of, uh, they use mobility aids or they're not able to leave their apartments or they're not comfortable leaving their apartments because they don't really have a network in the building. Um, and so they don't want to necessarily go and sit with strangers. So sometimes they do go down to the lobby. Other times they end up sort of sequestered to their apartment, which leads to even more suffering. Do we have any idea um, the scale of this problem during uh, a heat wave? I know one of the things I took away from your piece is that it's, it's really hard to determine when or if heat is the cause of death or serious illness. Yeah, absolutely. So it's it's really complicated because when heat affects the human body, it doesn't necessarily, like you don't necessarily immediately have a heat stroke and, and that's not usually what people die of. Uh, it's more often that heat makes it more difficult for people with existing conditions. So, you know, heart conditions, breathing conditions, uh, diabetes, things of that nature. Um, people with those conditions are more likely to suffer during heat waves uh, because it exacerbates what's already happening to them. So the Ontario Coroner's Office doesn't, uh, doesn't record heat deaths the same way that, for example, Montreal does. In Montreal, when a person, when a first responder attends a scene where there is um, a heat-related illness, they will note down that the conditions were very hot. Um, but in Ontario, that doesn't necessarily happen. Uh, and so that means that we don't really have a count of how many people are getting sick or dying uh, during heat waves. Instead, the coroner's office believes that the most important thing is prevention. But a lot of advocates say that, you know, that means that we're severely undercounting hmm. the like genuine effects uh, that this heat is having on, on the elderly people in the city. Let's talk about Toronto specifically because that's where your piece focuses. I know all cities kind of have this problem, but what do we know about the heat waves Toronto has been getting recently, the patterns of them, if they're increasing, etc.? Yeah, so um, just this past week uh, and towards the end of June, we've had a couple of heat events over the course of a few days. 
Um, Toronto is getting hotter and hotter and, and will continue to as climate change worsens. Uh, and so, you know, there are a couple of different emissions and uh, temperature projection models that have come out. Um, and so one of the key projections is that even if we have a low carbon projection model in which emissions go down uh, starting in 2050, Toronto is still going to experience, you know, more than three times as many hot days as they were in the latter half of, of the 20th century. Um, and then if the emissions remain as high as they are now, um, you know, the number of hot days could go up to like more than four times they are now. And so you know, in the course of a single year in that projection, you'd have like 55 days where the temperature was 30 degrees or more. Um, and the average length of a heat wave in that scenario would go up as well. So it's inevitable that Toronto is going to get hotter. It's just about by what degree. So far, we've talked about Toronto getting hotter as though it's one place. And when it's 40 degrees on a day, it's 40 degrees all across uh, the city. Is that true? Well, so urban heat island effect means that uh, the way that cities are designed is like sort of inherently unequal uh, because wealthier and whiter parts of cities, uh, specifically Toronto, but also most other urban centers um, are, you know, more likely to have access to tree cover and shade and, you know, uh, water spaces and like a lakefront or things like that. Um, whereas low-income and racialized spaces uh, usually don't have enough tree cover, cover, which means that they don't have access to shade. Um, canopy, tree canopy uh, decreases the, the temperature significantly. And so, you know, when you're living in this beautiful green leafy neighborhood, you're not experiencing as much heat as you are if you live in sort of, uh, you know, a dense neighborhood full of high rises. Um, and also the building materials for each of these spaces is different. And so in high-rise communities, especially older ones, you have a lot of uh, building materials that retain and absorb heat. Uh, you know, so dark colored surfaces and concrete and asphalt, all of those things retain uh, heat. And then in the nights, uh, you know, release that heat into uh, the surroundings, which means that you don't even get to cool down your surroundings at night. And so all of these different factors paired with the fact that low-income residential neighborhoods are also supposed to be closer to industrial areas means that the poorest and most vulnerable uh, residents of a city are usually the ones also experiencing heat the worst. Do we have a way to measure uh, that difference, say, from a green leafy neighborhood to uh, high rises, you know, a few blocks over? And here I'm thinking specifically uh, for people who know Toronto, since you described it, the difference between Rosedale and St. Jamestown, which are next to each other. Mm -hmm. um, so there are some academic models that do sort of, uh, you know, satellite imagery and uh, a test for temperatures along those lines and use uh, different sorts of like academic measures to be able to understand the differences. It's a bit tricky because it won't be a difference of like 35 and 40 degrees necessarily. Mm -hmm. uh, but the thing is that in the shade, uh, you know, temperatures can be affected for like between 10 and 20 degrees, depending on how extreme the temperature is. And so uh, if you stand, for example, under a tree in Rosedale, uh, you will be much cooler, uh, you know, by a factor of several degrees than you would be if you're standing on the asphalt in St. Jamestown. Can you reach way back and tell me about Toronto's worst heat wave ever? First of all, it's a novelty these days when the worst weather event for a city is still like decades in the past because I'm used to them all happening now. But tell me about the worst heat wave in Toronto history and, and how the city has adapted to dealing with heat since then. 
Yeah. So um, Toronto's worst ever heat wave was in 1936, which is, it's really wild because, you know, you think about the fact that temperatures are getting worse now. We're probably going to be seeing more and more events like that, but that was the worst one on record. Uh, temperatures were in the mid thirties and forties uh, for several days in a row for eight straight days. Part of what I thought was really strange and interesting when I was reading about that um, was that in response, a lot of people, you know, sort of tucked to the lakefront and stayed there, you know, during the nights uh, for several days in a row, um, only going back to their houses sort of for brief periods of time. Uh, and I think that that's one of the key things that has changed in the way that we would respond to a heat wave now is that we don't end up like we don't access communal areas with the same level of comfort and freedom necessarily that we may have in 1936. Uh, mm. And so now I think if there was a heat event, you probably wouldn't see people sleeping uh, on the beach overnight. Um, and so now what ends up happening is that because, you know, communities uh, are sort of a little more insulated and isolated, uh, you'll have people sort of suffering through the heat alone. Um, the response to heat has improved, certainly. You know, now we have relief networks uh, throughout the city and volunteers checking in on vulnerable people. Um, but there are also some drawbacks in the amount of industrial space in the city now versus then the lack of tree cover now, um, and the fact that people don't feel as uh, comfortable accessing those open spaces where they might feel cooler. I realize this next question is a privileged one to ask, but the other thing we have now that we didn't have widely back then at all is air conditioning. Why can't we just get everybody in an air-conditioned space? Yeah, so that's really the question that everyone is grappling with right now, right? Because air conditioning is the most immediate solution that we can think of. Um, it is the, the easiest and quickest solve uh, for this particular moment in time. Uh, and so part of the problem is that uh, a lot of people in places like St. Jamestown and other lower income parts of the city, they do have air conditioners in their houses, but they can't afford to use them because of the energy bills. And so for the people who you know, don't have access to AC, there's no infrastructure to get those built in because those buildings you know, are built in the 1960s. They don't have like HVAC systems running through them. And so the renovations would be a massive amount of money and they would be the responsibility of the building owner. Hmm. And then for places that do have air conditioning, people can't afford to turn it on. Um, and so part of the problem of using AC as your sole solution is that not everyone's going to have the infrastructure and also the cost on the energy grid would be immense. The city's not really built for every single resident to be using air conditioning at the exact same moment. And so you're going to have, um, you know, an immense toll to the, to the energy grid, the potential for huge blackouts, things of that nature. And so air conditioning is really key because it's the thing we need to be getting people right now so that they don't die during these heat waves. Um, and we need to be creating ways that they can access that, whether that be providing funding to lower income people who can't afford to use their air conditioners or providing like floor model air conditioners uh, to people who uh, can't sort of fit one into their window or install it into the HVAC system. There are solutions, but more broadly, we need to be thinking about resilient um, resilient architecture and building design that creates passive cooling. I'm going to get to the architecture in a moment, but first... Just on the AC question, I mean, there are lots of rules and regulations if you want to be a landlord or own buildings uh, about, you know, you have to have heat in the winter. You have to be able to keep your uh, units above a certain number of degrees. As the world gets hotter, isn't the logical solution to require that uh, in the other direction? 
Absolutely. That is something that um, a lot of people have been talking about at the moment. There is, I believe, a proposal uh, from an MP uh, to you know, put that into law. Part of the problem is that changes that would happen to the requirements uh, for you know, residential tenancies, that would have to go through the province. And so it needs to be a priority for the province to create that sort of maximum temperature regulation in the home. Hmm. And you can't mandate that landlords have ACs because that, that would be, again, a sort of massive provincial change that we need to happen to the uh, Tenancy Act. And so, you know, those two things combined mean that there needs to be significant political will for people to actually get the ball rolling on that. And right now, you get some of that at the city level, you don't get much at the provincial level. What do we do at the city level right now? Um, you mentioned Lydia and people like her, but but what does the city do and, and what is it planning to do uh, to adapt to increasing extreme heat? So we've got a few different things going on. So First of all, we have the, um, you know, the city's heat relief network and heat relief strategy. Um, so that is a, a complicated rollout with, with mixed results and mixed perspectives. So uh, the city essentially has created a network of, of public spaces that they redirect people towards when on extreme uh, temperature days. And so, you know, you'll have public libraries that have air conditioning, malls, pools, community centers, things of that nature. For example, when Lydia goes to one of the buildings in St. Jamestown to, um, you know, check in on the residents, you'll see in the lobby that it says your nearest cooling center is like the local public library, the local community center. The problem with that is that, again, you know, a lot of people don't have the mobility to be able to like go 25 minutes away from their home in order to get cooling. There's no existing sort of transit system that would help people get there specifically for those purposes. Uh, You know, no sort of specialized uh, mobility system for the seniors in these communities. Um, And you also have the issue of like community and isolation, right? People don't necessarily feel like they would be comfortable going to a community center and being around strangers if they're relatively isolated in their communities. Um, And so all of those factors mean that like while the heat relief network is important, it's not actually necessarily reaching the people who need it most. Um, And so a lot of advocates have said that it's, it's not really enough. And then in terms of new buildings, there is the uh, the green standard for buildings, which mean that, you know, buildings that are being proposed and built now over the last sort of like half a decade have to have 50 to 75 percent cool materials used to build them. And so they're not retaining heat in the same way older buildings are. And, you know, they have to have green roofs or cool roofs that mean that um, their roofs are actually helping with cooling down the building as a whole. Um, and so there are, you know, pretty solid standards set right now for the buildings that are going to be built. But part of the problem is that who's going to be able to afford to live in those buildings, right? Hmm. And in terms of renovation, there is a fund through the city that would uh, provide like low cost financing for uh, landowners and property owners to retrofit their buildings with um, with the kind of infrastructure that would help put in AC. But then you're leaving it to landlords and building owners to uh, prioritize that themselves. And that's something that we can't guarantee is going to happen. Since you mentioned isolation and you also mentioned uh, how vulnerable seniors are, I have to ask you about uh, long-term care facilities because I was pretty shocked. I imagine a lot of our listeners are pretty shocked to learn that not all of these places have air conditioning, which seems uh, frankly kind of insane to me. Mm-hmm. Um, it's really tricky because the provincial government likes to say that 100% of uh, long-term care homes have air conditioning. But what they mean by that is that they have it in one designated room of the building that is used for cooling. 
Part of the problem is that in individual rooms and residences, you won't necessarily have access to air conditioning. And a lot of the people in long-term care homes are bedridden in a way that like people living in their own apartments might not be. Right. And so it's even worse in long-term care homes to expect them to go down to a uh, general cooling zone because in those areas... Um, there's, you know, someone needs to be on uh, duty to like wheel them down and back to their rooms whenever they need. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, if they're bedridden, they won't have access to those rooms at all. So it, it becomes a really um, unfair and inequitable approach that people are, are marketing as, as if working much better than it is. So far, there's been a lot of unfairness and inequity. And the solutions that I've heard from you so far are long-term planning things. What could we work on tomorrow in this city to make sure more vulnerable people survive the next heat wave? Yeah, it's it's a very complicated question because it depends on who you ask. A lot of people would say access to air conditioning um, as one of the key things because, you know, while there are reasons that air conditioning isn't necessarily a sustainable long-term solution, it is a sort of like potentially life-saving solution in the interim. Um, and so some people would argue for better access to air conditioning, whether that be through, you know, city funded, um, getting people ACs that they can just plug in, you know, to their uh, to their rooms and, and funding for for covering the cost of uh, the energy uh, that runs an AC. Other people would say, you know, just creating better community models that um, create more accessible uh, cooling spaces closer to home and also where people, you know, have an actual incentive to go. Part of the reason that people don't necessarily want to sit in their lobby all day is because there's no uh, incentive to be there. You know, right. there's no sort of community provisions. The seating is uncomfortable. Uh, they don't necessarily have access to the kind of resources they would in their home. And so just making those spaces more welcoming um, and having more sort of funding, not leaving it up to the individual buildings to just sort of throw together some some lawn chairs to, to give people seating. Those are some key things that, that you would need in order to make those spaces more attractive to people. So those are two of the key ways. And then everyone is sort of, there's a consensus about, um, about having passive cooling for the future and for future buildings so that uh, this isn't a problem that like we're going to necessarily be able to handle generations on unless we have those in place. How close are we to a really dangerous point uh, where we're having several of these events a year? Well, it's really scary because we don't necessarily know because of broader concerns about how much are people actually committing to reduce emissions, uh, which uh, you know model of emissions projection is going to be the most accurate one for the future. Those are questions that are really up to politicians and, and business leaders to answer more so than any of the rest of us can. And so if that urgency is not reflected in the action that people take, it's going to be quite soon that we'll probably start to see these happen more and more often. Um, but yeah, it's, it's really a question of, of when and not if. Um, and I think people are, are bracing for, for the worst in, in the years to come. And in the meantime, I guess, uh, check on your neighbors takes on uh, even greater urgency. Absolutely. Check on your neighbors, check on your elderly loved ones, um, and just, yeah, make sure you're looking out for each other. And Ori, thank you so much for this. Thank you so much for having me. Anori Roy, associate editor at The Local. I wasn't kidding. I was on a farm for two weeks. It was hot. I'm back. It's lovely to be here. Thank you so much to our amazing guest hosts, to Kara Small and Garvia Bailey. I'm always glad when they let me have the chair back after someone fills in. 
That was The Big Story. For more from us, head to thebigstorypodcast.ca. Find us on Twitter at TheBigStoryFPN. You can write to us, hello, at thebigstorypodcast.ca. And you can call us, 416-935-5935. It's been a while. I just wanted to see how fast I could do that. You can find The Big Story everywhere you get your podcasts. You can ask your favorite smart speaker to play The Big Story podcast. And of course, thank you for listening. I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. We'll talk tomorrow. My name is John Cullen, and I want to tell you a story. It's a story about a scandal, broken relationships, gossip, rumors, money, corporate rivalry, and curling. It's the story of Broomgate, how a single broom, yes, a broom, turned friends into foes and almost killed the 500-year-old sport of curling. It was a year I'd like to forget. Broomgate, available now.